morning. Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. Welcome to the, whoever's watching on the live stream as well. I'm glad that you're here too. Um, fill out the guest uh, registers at the end of your row and pass those down so that other people can fill those out as well. Schedule for today, uh, everything is uh, back on to normal, so youth confirmation right after this uh, f- until 12.45. Come and get your kids at quarter till one. New members class tonight is back on at uh, 6.30 p.m. Is that when it starts? 6.30? I think it's 6.30. Be here at 6.30. 6. Okay. Be here at 6. Sorry. Everybody's so late anyway that if I say 6.30, we'll never even get started. So I'll be here at 6. Uh, we're starting. Uh, we, this is, it's been a couple weeks we've been off, but we're, we just started talking about baptism. So the next few weeks are going to be about baptism and uh, communion. And these are kind of the big topics. Anybody who wants to, to come is welcome to come and participate in this. If you are interested in joining the church, it's the track for uh, church membership. So uh, come and we'll have a discussion about baptism tonight and eat some donuts and hang out with each other. And it's usually a pretty good time. Uh, you should have got, those of you who are participating in uh, um, volunteering to help at the Covered Bridge 5K, you should have received an email um, from Jen this week about uh, schedule and where to be. If uh, you're still interested in helping out with that, uh, but you didn't sign up, please come and talk to me or get a hold of Jen Weber and we can point you to ways to volunteer for that. Okay, one last thing and then we'll get into worship. Uh, uh, Dr. Krause was here last week to talk about this opportunity that Lutheran Foundation has given the high school with this uh, three-for-one matching grant. If you don't remember what that was about, uh, come and talk to me. The goal here is to, uh, what, I, what I'd like to do is in a couple weeks, and I'll, I'll have something in the bulletin next week, to have um, a door offering, and then several weeks after that, have another door offering for the same thing. So two door offerings. I'm not asking everybody to give twice. Just in the summer, uh, lots of us bail and then come back. And so it'll give us a couple, if you, if you miss one of those Sundays, it'll give you uh, um, another opportunity to uh, donate to this. I'll have more information in the bulletin about that next week. Let me know if you have any questions. Okay, Ruth Thompson's going to come. She's got an announcement about uh, Mission Trip, and then we'll sing the opening hymn. All right, I've actually got a few announcements here of some ways that you guys can help the youth of this congregation. Um, This coming Saturday, we are doing our second annual yard sale. That raises money for the youth um, gathering that we'll go to in 2025, as well as the mission trips that we hope to make kind of a yearly thing. Uh, If you have items that you could donate to that, uh, you can drop them off this week. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it'll be open from 9.30 till 1.30 to drop things off. Tuesday and Wednesday evenings from 5.30 to 8.00. At night, it will be open, and then on Friday, anytime from 9 till 5.30, we'll keep taking any items that you have. So that's one way that you can help us out. Second way is to come and shop the sale on Saturday. It's from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Saturday, so come shop, bring your friends with you, tell them about it, get lots of people here. Um, If you are also willing, we've got a few more slots of helpers that we could use the day of the sale and the week leading up. If you're interested in that, see me, I've got a sign-up sheet for that. Um, 
And then one more thing that we're looking to one of the adults in the congregation here. I've been praying all week that God has kind of put on your heart that maybe you want to come with us on our mission trip. We've got spot for one more adult. So think about it, pray about it. Let us know if you are interested. Again, the dates for the mission trip are July 7th through July 15th. And then the last one is for the youth. If you are going on our mission trip, please make sure that you either print out the permission slip that I emailed yesterday or see me after church, and I will give you a physical copy of the permission slip. Thank you very much.
Please stand. Let's continue. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray and ask God to forgive our sins. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserved your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you. And in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The psalm for this morning is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. And lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen.
You may be seated. Old Testament reading is from Hosea 5. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Come, let us return to the Lord for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my, and my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading from Romans 4. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it's the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it's written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist, in hope Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's, Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, we're not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
we stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 9. Glory to you, O Lord. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. be seated. So this morning what I want to do is I want to begin um, a sermon series that's going to run through the end of Pentecost. So we're talking about end to November. I know that's a long one, but you'll understand why, uh, why in just a second. So I, I've been talking a lot, uh, actually the past two years, about the Bible being fundamentally not a rule book, although there are rules in it, not a book of inspiration, Although there's inspiring stuff in it, uh, most of us who've tried to read the Bible know that you frequently read it and don't get inspired. In fact, sometimes it's deflating. What it is fundamentally is a story. From beginning to end, it tells one big story, the big story, the meta-narrative, that all of our stories, God calls us to fit inside that big story. So some of you have been asking me, like, so how, does it, what, what, how do you do that? How do you read the Bible as a story? It's such a massive book, and there's so many bits and pieces in it that are not easy to read as story. I'm, I'm reading First Chronicles in my uh, devotions right now, and it's just names, list of names. You know, how do you, how do you read that as a story? So I thought what I would do is, is I would preach through the whole Bible, not every text, of course, but I would preach the whole story. And what I want to do is I want to introduce us to like the key signpost to give us a roadmap so that when we go home and we read the Bible as a story, we'll have a guide. So we're going to start at creation, which we read Genesis 1 last week. 
We're going to start at creation and go all the way to new creation and hit every single key point along the way and stop and pause and note that here's a signpost. Here's an exit ramp that's worth getting off on. And if we get off on this exit ramp and then we get off on the, the exit ramp that we'll see next week, it'll make sense of all the country, all the farmland, all the cities that we pass in between. So that was kind of my goal. The other goal is this, and it's of course related to that, is the way that you and I think about the world, the values that you have. See, I, this is really important, listen to this. The values that you have and the decisions that you make are based 95% on the stories that you, your life is shaped by. It's based upon the stories, not the principles. It's based upon the story that you believe your life is in and where it's headed. That determines what you're going to do when certain situations arise. That determines how you're going to plan. Not the principles that you have, especially if those principles are divorced from the story. And I'll give you an example. And I've done something similar to this before with you guys. You can go to confirmation class, and the way that we've typically in the LCMS, Lutheran Church, have done confirmation class, is give you a list of principles to subscribe to. And so you go through there and you learn all these principles, these facts, and you write them down and you memorize them and you go through confirmation. But you actually get your story from the broader culture. And so we have in our mind list of principles, things that like we were taught from the Bible are true, rules, facts. But the stories that we listen to are constantly telling us that really the only way that you're going to feel like a success deep down inside is if you're progressing financially or career-wise or materially. And so Christians frequently, when it comes to making decisions about jobs they take, what to do with their money, even sometimes decisions upon whether to participate at work in a scheme that might be a little bit shady, but maybe okay, they'll be informed by the story of the American dream way more than principles that they learned, thou shalt not steal. Or a, prince, a fact, you know, God is more important than money. We're way more informed by our stories. That's why it's a very important, I think, that we do this, this, this for the next few months, is go through the story but a part of that is I'm going to invite you to do this with me. And this is, I'm not, I'm not passing this down as law. I'm just saying it would be a good idea. Some of you, you fill your mind up with the story of our culture, whatever little subgroup of our culture that you're involved in, whichever side of the ideological track you're on, you fill your mind up with the stories that are being told there. Well, then you come to church or you, you know biblical facts, but actually what controls your emotions, your decisions, your thoughts about the future are the stories that we're imbibing from the culture. So what I'd like to do, again, just, I, I realize that crash diets are impossible. I know they, they never work. Try to spend more time in the story, capital S, than in your favorite little individual stories, wherever you get those. It could be like, you, you could be a Netflix binger. You could be addicted to social media. It could be a Twitter thing for you. And, and maybe you don't even think you are, okay? So I'm just saying, if the amount of time that you're spending in God's word is down here and the amount of time that you're spending on Netflix or social media or wherever it is, is up here, rearrange that. Rearrange that over the course of the next few months. Start to turn your back a little bit on the stories that you've been imbibing. 
I'm not saying they're all false. I'm not saying that at all. And start to fill up on the big story. So we're going to go through the signpost, but as we go through the signpost, spend some time during the week going off, taking a country road, going off and exploring the cities that we don't have time to explore in God's word in here, okay? I'm just asking you to do that. I can't make you, and some of you are addicted. You, you might not know you are, but you're addicted. So it's going to be hard. I'm not telling, again, cold turkey doesn't hardly ever work when you're trying to quit smoking or trying to eat better. So just, if you can, lower it a little bit and raise the amount of time that you're in God's word a bit. All right? Do that. And we'll see what the Holy Spirit does. Okay. So the plan is, let me give you the plan, and then we'll jump into the sermon here. The plan is to, and I didn't do it today, but, but I'm going to start doing it next week, that the scripture readings are going to match up with the signposts that we're looking at. But the psalm is going to be critical. We're going to spend the rest of the time, we're going to look at the stories from scripture, but we're going to look at, each Sunday we're going to look at a psalm that taps in to that particular signpost and ask, what does it mean? And what that's going to do is it's going to let us get into the story, but it's going to get us into the story as an act of worship because we're gonna do it via the Psalms, okay? So, this morning, now, we read Genesis 1 last week, the story of, we're starting creation, a big surprise. Next week, we're gonna do the fall, Adam and Eve's fall. We're, I'm not gonna read Genesis 1 again, because we read that last week, but we are gonna look at Psalm 24. So I want you to look at the, in the bulletin at Psalm 24, or turn in your Bibles to Psalm 24, and we're gonna ask, what does this say about creation? It's a great Psalm, too. We're actually probably gonna come back to Psalm 24 and read it again on the very last Sunday of the church year when we talk about the new creation because it's really good. Now, I didn't do, again, I didn't do this this week. I wish that I had. The psalm is not numbered in your bulletin. If you open up your Bible, it will be. It's not numbered in the bulletin. So if you want to make a mark in between the, 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 the lines in there, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the consecutive reading that we just did, they do match up with the verses, so the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof is the end of verse two, of the end of verse one, it's verse one. Verse two ends, establish it upon the rivers. If, you, if, if this helps you in your bulletin, make a line between that and who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and then make another line, either mentally or with a pen, whatever, between uh, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, verse six and verse seven, lift up your heads, O gates, because there's three parts of this psalm, all right? So we're gonna look at the, the, each of the three parts here. So the first part, and ask, what does this have to do with creation? The first part's pretty plain. Verses one and two, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Obviously, talking creation, verse two is. Point number one, what does this psalm tell us about creation is this. Because God created the world, he owns everything and everyone in it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell in it. Why? Verse two, because he founded it upon the seas. He created it. He invented it and built it and established it upon the rivers. So God, this is the main point of creation. God owns everything. He owns every single thing that exists. He owns every person that exists. God owns all of it because he made it. And that's the main point of creation. I, some of you maybe are expecting me to talk about evolution. I'm largely uninterested in that topic. But that's not the main point. God didn't give us Genesis 1 in order to teach us about evolution and creation. 
God gave us Genesis 1, and, and, and the emphasis of all the texts in the Bible about creation are this, is that because God made everything, he owns everything. He owns everything. He owns all of you, and he owns all of your property. Now, a couple of objections, or maybe not objections, that might be too strong, but, but, but a couple of thoughts that stir in the mind of a good American like myself. One of them would be, well, what about, like, private property? Like, I believe in the... The, the value of like private property, personal private property. Where is that? If God owns everything, do I have private property? And the answer in the Bible is no, you don't, and yes, you do. We'll have to look at how those things fit together. But it, it, it's a qualified yes and a qualified no. Let's do the no part first. Private, this is no, private property does not exist, all right, in the Bible. What we're going to do is I'm going I'm I'm to refer to um, uh, the book of Leviticus here. God gave his people, Israel, uh, something called Jubilee. And Jubilee was uh, something that happened every 49 years. Uh, every seven years, there would be a, a, a cycle of Sabbaths where uh, all slaves were to be uh, manumitted, all servants were to be freed, all debts were to be uh, wiped clean. This is really kind of a crazy thing in the ancient world, which means that slavery and debts for the people of Israel are not the way that slavery and debts are for anybody else in the history of the world. They're very temporary. You can't hold them over people's heads. At, at, every seven years, it's gone. If you're a slave or a servant, when, the seven, when, when that seventh year pops up, you can walk free, no questions asked. Every 49 years, which is seven sevens, all the land, all the property that you owned would go back to the person to whom, the family to whom it was given when Israel enter, entered the promised land. So if you lived in a house for 30 years, at the end, if, the, if, if the 30th year was the end of the, was, the, was that Jubilee year, you would have to give it back. And so when you bought property, you understood, I'm not really buying it. I, I, I'm, I, I'm renting it. And the point is, is, isn't that the way it is with all of our property? I mean, I know some of you own houses and cars and clothes and whatnot, but you're basically just renting them. You're, you're going to th throw them away in the case of clothes, hopefully, or, or pass them on your property. You're just going to give it to somebody else after you die, or the government's going to come and take it from you if you haven't done a good job of setting up your estate. It's going to go to somebody else. It's not yours. The point, though, for, for God is this, is that that temporal nature of our earthly possessions, that temporal nature of our property is because God fundamentally owns everything. And in Leviticus 25, God says to his people, says to, 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 through Moses, he says to the people, the, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. You're not to take the land and sell it forever because he says the land is mine. God says the pro every, every bit of property here is mine. It belongs to me. You are strangers and sojourners with me. You're basically renters. You, you can live here, but it's not really yours. It's really mine. You're like resident aliens. You pass through, you stay for a while, and then you die and you're gone. But I always own this property. But, so that's the no. What's the, what's the yes part? If you go back a little bit earlier in Leviticus 25, God says to, uh, to, to the people of Israel, he says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath of the Lord. And then he goes on to explain Sabbath and Jubilee. When you come to the land that I give you, all right, so God, what is it? Is the land yours and it's not really mine? Or did you give this land to me? And the answer is, of course, yes to both of those things. 
Yes to both of them. God gives us things. God gives it. Your, the house that you have, God gave it to you. The family that you have and the friends that you have, God gave them to you. Your property, God gave it to you. It's yours, but it's not really yours. Now, why is this hard for us to get? Because we're, um, I, I know not all of you are, but by and large, we're Americans. And the right to personal private property is so deeply valued that anything that kind of doesn't treat that with the sacredness it deserves as an American citizen, we look askance at. Let me, let, let me, let me give you a frame to think about this that I think is more biblical than, than the American dream model, which is this. I'm gonna say this, I got, I'm gonna say this a couple times because I think it's good. I think it's important. Biblically, we don't have a right to private property. Instead, we have a responsibility to personal stewardship. Biblically, we don't have a right to private property. Instead, we have a responsibility to personal stewardship. So we don't have a right. You can't say, this is my, right. this is my property, I do what I want with it. That's, that's kind of the way we typically think about our private property. That actually doesn't exist. It's not yours, it's not mine. We don't get to do what we want with it. Instead, it's a responsibility. It's not a right, it's a responsibility. Well, for what? Not for private ownership. It is personal. It's personal. It is yours. Like, I don't get to come in your house and say, there's no such thing as private property, Aaron said, so I'm, I'm going to live here now. No, it's your personal property, but it's yours as a responsibility to steward. Yours is a, it's a personal responsibility to steward, not to own as property. Does this make sense? It's a little bit radical. It's a little bit lefty. It's not, it's, it's, it's not, I earn this and it's mine. And if they want something, they need to earn it. It's God gave this to me. I need to use it responsibility. I don't just, I don't let everybody move into my house. I don't like, who, I don't like people I don't know just come up and take my car and drive it away. But fundamentally, it belongs to God, which means he's called me to use it as a vocation. So it's, it's, it's not mine. Now, the, the biblical principle behind all of this is it's because God owns it. Not me. God owns all of my stuff and all of my people, and me too, not me. All right, one, one, one tiny, maybe tiny objection, at least a thought that I had when I was thinking about this was, this sounds a little bit oppressive. Like, I don't have any rights, like God owns me. Well, that's probably, that's probably saying it too harsh. The, the, the reason why somebody might think it's oppressive, that God owns everything and we don't, is because we have a bad view of God. We kind of assume that if God owns everything, and he's kind of a big meanie, we all, we all know that, he's kind of waiting to zap us when we do wrong, that that means that I don't get to use anything. But actually, when the psalmist says that God owns everything, it's good news for me and you. It's good news for you because it means that you own everything and that God, when we say that God has given us our property and our people and ourselves to steward, we mean he's done that so that you can enjoy it. Now, part of that enjoying is, is not hoarding it. That's a broken, incurvata say thing. Part of it is, part of the enjoyment of the people and the property and our own persons, God owning them, is that we learn the enjoyment of sharing those with other people and using those to serve our communities and our neighbors. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, now Paul's, Paul is addressing the question of, am I allowed to eat meat? 
this is going somewhere. I'm connecting this, so just hang with me. Am I allowed to eat meat that's been offered at the local pagan temples that's now being sold in the marketplace to make money for the pagan temples? Some people say no. That's participating in idolatry. Like the demons who are the dark forces behind those temples, they own that meat. And like if I eat that meat, I'm taking part of that into myself. And Paul says, in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, look, if it bugs you, if you can't eat the meat that's been offered at the pagan temples in, in faith with a good conscience, then don't eat it. Like, don't violate your conscience, for whatever you do. But if you can, if, if you're not troubled by that, if you understand that the demons are nothing because God owns everything, then go ahead and eat the meat. And the way that he says it is this, 1 Corinthians 10, 25 and 26. Eat, Paul says, eat whatever's sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience because... The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And he quotes our Psalm, Psalm 24, verse one. So for Paul, this is not oppressive. The fact that God owns this and God owns everything else is not like, well, dang it, I guess I don't get nothing then. God gets everything. No, no, if God gets everything and I truly understand that my father who loves me owns everything, that means the entire world is mine to enjoy. The entire world is mine to enjoy. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Okay, because God created the world, he owns everything and everyone. That's the first thing we learned from this psalm. Now moving on to verses three and six. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Okay, so he talks about creation and then he goes on to give us a list of rules. Here's how I want you to live. That seems like a huge leap. Like what do those two things have to do with each other? Like, what does creation have to do with, like, God saying, here's how I want you to act? And the answer, of course, is, uh, I think, apparent when we, when we think about it. And it's this, is because since God created the world, and that means he owns everything in the world, that means he gets to decide how everything should work, including us. All right. Creation implies ownership, and ownership implies responsibility. If God created the world, that means he owns the world. And if he owns the world, he gets to decide how things work. Whoever invents the game, invents the rules. If God invented the game, God gets to invent the rules. So his, he talks about creation. I made everything. I own everything, which means I own everything. And that means I get to decide how you act. And the way that he wants us to act in verse 4 is, so basically the question is, who gets to be in my presence? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, verse three? And who shall stand in his hold? Who gets to come into the temple? And the answer is, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So clean hands, what does that have to do with? That has to do with right actions, people, with, people who do right, who does not lift up his soul to what is false internally. Our thoughts and our emotions also should be pure and clean and should obey God's law. And then finally, who does not swear deceitfully? Our mouths as well. So our thoughts and our actions and our words should all, God says, match up with the way he says it should be. These are the people that can go into his presence, is, are, are the people who are obedient to his law. And he gets to say that because he's God. He makes the rules. And, and you and I don't get to go against this. You also add one more thing here. Now we're going to come back to verse 5, but verse 6 says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. God is looking for people who are seeking him. God is looking for people who want him. 
Now, how, how do you seek God's face? I think this is super simple. Like, you need to be in God's word. Again, like, ramp down the shows that you're binging. Ramp down the news programs that you're watching. Ramp down, even ramp down the sporting events that you're watching or the novels that you're reading and ramp up God's word for the next few months. And let's see what the Holy Spirit will do. Let's go into God's presence. I, I, I swear this to you as truth. I speak before you, I lie not, that the Holy Spirit works through Scripture and not through Netflix. I swear. Let's test it out. The Holy Spirit works through God's Word and not through Facebook. Let's test it out over the next few months. Also, come to worship. Now, I, I know that everybody's sitting here in worship right now, but some of you are kind of hit and miss. And I, I don't know why. Maybe you've got good reasons. Maybe you're Batman and like three Sundays you're on and one Sunday you can come and worship. And if that's the case, I support you. Go and do what you do to save Gotham, Lynn Carbon. However, if that's not you, start making it a regular habit to come to worship every week because God speaks through his word and he gives himself to us in Holy Communion. Okay, that's my commercial for Seek God's Face. Now, let's get back to the, 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 the main point here, which is because God created the world, he gets to draw up the rule. And when God says, here's how I want you to ask, act, he has the right to say that. He has the right to say that. There was a family, uh, there was a couple that visited here it was like back in 2018, really soon after I was here. I was gone one Sunday, and there was a guest preacher who preached, who preached a sermon about God's right to say who people can have sex with. And they wrote me, not the guest uh, pastor, they wrote me, they'd been visiting a little bit, three or four weeks, they wrote me a letter saying this was deeply offensive, it flies in the face of people's personal freedom and agency, like, we have the right to have sex with who we want to have sex with, and it's offensive to say that we shouldn't. So I went to their house, and I talked to them, and they hadn't really thought through it a ton, but I pointed out to them from Scripture how Paul, specifically, we looked at 1 Corinthians 5, how Paul talks about how God commands us to be faithful to our spouses that we're married to, and if we're not married, then to be chaste, to not have sex. And... Uh, the wife looked at me and said, well, I just completely disagree with that. And I said, well, I'm, I'm, I, you can, this was Paul, Paul that I just read here. She goes, I know. I completely disagree with that. If your God never disagrees with you, if you say to yourself, well, God, this is what God thinks, and it just happens to be everything that you think, then you're not worshiping a God who's created you in his image. You're worshiping a God that you've created in your own image. You've created a God that just agrees with you about everything. He's not worth anything. Like, just dispense with him. Like, you already know that you agree with yourself about everything. We all agree with ourselves about everything. If we didn't, we would change our minds, right? If your God doesn't disagree with you sometimes, then he's not a God worth worshiping. He's just, he's just a reflection in your own mirror. There will be times when God says stuff in his word that every single person in this room, including me, the paid Christian, will say, I don't know if I can go there. I don't know if I can agree with that. I don't know if that's right. That's totally appropriate. As long as I understand that the guy who made the rules gets to decide at the end of the day who's right and who's wrong. And that when I disagree with God, it's, it happens. 
happens to all of us, that I have to repent and say, okay, God, help me to agree with you. Else, it's not even worth it. There's no point in us making up individual gods for us to follow around that are just kind of like ghosts of ourselves that we pay attention to and we say, well, I think God's like this. Oh yeah, God votes just like you do and God spends his money just like you do. That's, no, that's not really God. That's not, God will disagree with us. God will make you unhappy from time to time. If you don't read stuff in the scripture sometimes and think, I don't know, I don't like that at all, then you're not really reading the Bible. There should be times when you read the Bible and say, I don't like that. That's okay. There's lots of people in the Bible who say to God, I don't like what you're doing. It's totally fine. There's a whole book about it, the book of Job. At the end of the day, though, to say to God, I don't like what you're doing is fine as long as you say, I don't like what you're doing, but because you're God, I'm gonna let you have the last word and I'm gonna submit. That, that, that's where we're supposed to be at. Why? Because God created us. He created us. He gets to make the rules. God makes the rules, and so he gets to decide what's right and wrong. Now, I know that some of you, those of you who are good Lutherans, are asking the question, well, about verse four, he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I can't do that, so what am I supposed to do with this? Yes, you can't do with that. We'll talk about it in point three, which we're about to get to. But don't, don't do the good Lutheran thing, or the bad Lutheran thing, I should say, and say, I can't do this, so it doesn't matter. Like, I, I, I'm gonna swear deceitfully. I don't have pure hands and a pure heart. And so, well, it doesn't matter because I get forgiven in the end. No, it, it, it desperately does matter. Again, God makes the rules, right? But what are we gonna do with the fact that when it comes time to ascend the hill of the Lord, I have to admit that I've spent a large portion of my adult life with impure hands and an impure heart and a, and a deceitful tongue. What do I do with that? All right, point number three, verses seven through 11. 7 through 10. God created this world, the world that he now owns and everything in it, the world that he makes the rules for. God created this world specifically to live with us. God created the world, specific, not, not as an ant farm that he could set up and like watch how the little people run around and make their villages and sometimes they eat each other. Dang it, that's bad. But to actually come and live with us here, all right? Verses seven through 10. Now, scholars, ever, scholars all over the world agree uh, throughout history, both Christians and Jews, that this is a psalm about the temple. Coming to the temple to worship. We got that in verse five, right? Three, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? That's temple language. Verses seven through 10 as well. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. This is a psalm about God coming into his temple. Okay, again, what does this have to do with creation? Does that have anything to do with creation at all? Or is it just some sort of weird, God created the world, and then, well, someday he's gonna come and live in his temple too. Actually, the two things are directly related. Now, here's one of the great themes that we're gonna talk about at different points. This is one of the big major signposts, kind of one of them big green ones that span the highway so you don't miss it. The signpost of temple. Where is God living? Where does God want to live? Now, the, 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 the confirmation answer is God lives in heaven. Okay, that's true, that's true, that's true. But there are different times in human history when he's decided to especially live in a special place here on earth. We call that his temple. 
the house of God, the place where heaven and earth intersect. And I'll just stop there because this is, we talked about this a lot in Revelation, in the Revelation sermon series. David is talking about this here, this temple where God is going to come and live. Now, again, back to the question. What does this have to do with creation? Because creation, creation, God making the world is basically him building a huge, massive temple that he can come and live with his people in. That's what creation is about. So, uh, in fact, there's this really interesting book written by a guy named John Walton, not a character on the Walton TV show, but an Old Testament theologian who teaches at Wheaton College named John Walton, who wrote a book called The Lost World of Genesis 1, which is interesting. He demonstrates that if you, if you read the Genesis 1 account, what it is is a description of God building a temple, this place where heaven and earth come together in one place. And in the middle of that temple, like all good temples, is an image. An image that you can go to and see who the God of that temple looks like. And the name of that image there is, and we're coming back to, next, to, to last week, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve. Eventually Jesus. But Genesis 1 is about God's desire to live in the middle of his people. God's desire to live with us. In fact, uh, Rolf Jacobson, who is a, a um, a commentator I was studying this week on Psalms says this, and this is kind of nerdy, so I'm going to say this, and I'm going to say it slow, and then I'll try to unpack it a tiny bit. It's not super hard to understand, but it's a little bit uh, woo-woo. Rolf Jacobson says this, the implied theological setting of Psalm 24 is, the, so what's Psalm 24 about, is what he's saying, is the mutual advent, two coming together, the, the mutual advent of God and humans entering into each other's spheres. Psalm 24 is about the quest for humans to get to God. And then at the end of the psalm, it's about God's quest to get to us. Psalm 24, in fact, actually, this is the whole story of the Bible. So we'll come back to Psalm 24 in the very last sermon on new creation. The whole story of the Bible is about God's quest to come and live with us. And all the barriers that stand in his way that, that have been created by us. And his determination to once again enter his temple. To throw open wide the ancient doors and to come and live once again at home with us. Now, what does this mean? How are we able to do this? How are we able to enter into God's presence? Like I said before, this is impossible. The path of morality can lead somewhat there. But, but at the end of our own morality is this thick hedge in a barrier where we just can't get any farther. Beauty works the same way, like good music, good art, beautiful scenery. Like it kind of evokes God and points us in a certain direction. You can chase down music and it can guide you towards the presence of a God, but it can only get you so far before the hazy wall of our own brokenness rises before us and we can't get any farther. Justice is the same way. We all crave justice. We all instinctively, whether you're devout believers or devout atheists, every person in here instinctively knows that there's some sort of value system that's bigger than us individual humans. And you can chase that down and it can get you to the place where maybe you can say, I don't know how this could exist without a God appropriately, but can it actually get you up over the hedge to God himself? And the answer is no. Eventually, God's gonna have to leap the hedge and come this way which is what verses seven and 10 are about. God coming home to us. God jumping up over the hedge to us. 
He makes the leap and comes into our presence. The Lord Almighty comes in through the ancient doors and lives with us. Jesus, in fact, is the apex of this. Now, I promise we'll talk about this more later. God comes and lives in a tabernacle, smoke, fire. He comes and lives in the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8 that Solomon builds. The apex of this is when he actually becomes a human being and comes and lives here on earth with us and insists, I'm the new temple. Jesus is the mutual advent of the human and the divine coming into each other's spheres. This is a mouthful, I know. It's a little bit more philosophical than I'd like it to be. But Jesus is the quest for the human to, to, to get to God and the quest for God to get to the human. And it's the only place where those two things link up. There's no other way to make that link. It has to be through the God-man, Jesus. Which shows us that at creation, that was already the plan. God's desire to be with us. Jesus is plan A. Already from the very beginning, God's desire to live a human life, to walk with us, to experience everything that you experience, all the joys, everything that makes you happy, Jesus wants to experience with you. Everything that breaks you, everything that tears your heart out, every fear that you have, your impending death, he wants to share that with you too, and in fact, he has. He's experienced all this as some sort of like cosmic exercise and like, let's outwit Satan. Maybe there's a bit of that in there, but fundamentally, it's about his desire to love you and to be with you. That's what creation is about. God creates everything. He owns everything. He calls the shots on everything, but he does that so that he can create this sphere where he can come and in the person of Jesus Christ, who suffered and died for us and rose from the dead for us, connect with us and say, you, are want, you human beings are now home because I, Jesus Christ, am now home with you. Let's pray. Father, make us grateful. Make us aware, Father, of, of what's at stake in this world that you've created and Help us to see our lives, our, our property, our relationships, our own bodies and our own souls as the venue in which you play out this great drama of redemption, as the venue in which you've decided to come and connect yourself to us. We thank you for this. It's not done on our own abilities, but it's done as a gift of grace from you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
Please stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us, and thank you for um, making us in your image and to some extent um, accommodating yourself to our image by becoming human and by becoming our Savior, by dying the death we should have died and by being raised to life and by raising us to life inside of yourself. Make us constantly aware of this, Lord. Open our mouths to give you thanks and praise for who you've created us to be and who you've redeemed us to be. Lord, in your mercy. Jesus, we thank you for all the ministries that you've given our church and for all the good things, the good gifts that you have uh, given us by pouring out your Holy Spirit on us. And I, I praise and thank you this morning, especially for our youth group and our youth leaders and uh, the way they minister to our kids, uh, for Stacy and Ruth and KV and Michelle and William, and for all the hope that uh, is being built up in your gospel through the sac sacrificial ministry of these leaders. I also thank and praise you for uh, Mike Ramsey and the work that he is doing at Revival School and ministering your gospel uh, in uh, word and in deeds of love to uh, mainly Congolese refugees. And I pray that you would continue to uh, provide for him and give him uh, in his ministry uh, the means to keep on doing this important work. Lord, in your mercy. Amen. Father, we pray for everyone who is struggling this morning with uh, feeling lost, sometimes uh, lost from you, sometimes lost from people that uh, we love, sometimes lost from our own selves. And I just pray, Lord, that this alienation would be overcome by the community that you're building up here and your son, Jesus Christ, and that your Holy Spirit would bind us to yourself and to each other so that we could come to find the wholeness and healing that comes from being a part of your body and from experiencing the benefits of your Holy Spirit 
in the applied death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. And I pray this, uh, Lord, in your mercy. Thank you for, uh, God, allowing us to come into your presence and inviting us to sit on your lap and to make these requests to you as your children. Uh, Lord, this is uh, everything that we ask for and everything that we are is not possible outside of the shed blood of your son, Jesus. And so you know and we confess and give you praise for the fact that we come into your presence now by virtue of him and by virtue of his blood and by virtue of the union that you've created between us and him and the boldness that you've given us to address you as father. We give your son Jesus, our brother Jesus, thanks and praise for that. We pray this in his name, amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who out of love for his fallen creation humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Risen from the dead, he's freed us from eternal death and given us life everlasting. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. pray together in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Please stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. bless the Lord. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. We read in the gospel reading that Jesus was uh, criticized. We can assume that he was criticized frequently for eating dinner with tax collectors and sinners. So you're going to look around and you're going to have conversations with people who are like that, tax collectors and sinners and the lowest of the low. 
by offering each other a free welcome when strangers walk in with who knows what kind of emotional and moral and psychological and relational baggage. And we offer them free welcome in friendship and community. We're acting like Jesus. Let's practice it now. Go in peace.